Welcome to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. We are in the midst of a discussion on opioid use disorder. Uh, and with that, we've been uh, covering the American Society of Addiction Medicine's levels of care, uh, factored by the different dimensions of need one through six. Uh, and on our last podcast, we had finished up with level 3.1. Uh, which we termed halfway house. Uh, I wanted to uh, add this too, uh, while I have a moment before we proceed onward. I wanted to add uh, to that notion of level 3.1 and specifically the terminology of a halfway house. Uh, Level 3.1 is oftentimes also identifiable as rehabilitation services. Uh, And with that, it sounds a little bit more, uh, I don't know, somewhat more refined or, again, much more clinically directed uh, within a more secular professional context. Uh, Halfway House uh, seems to uh, sort of be a little bit of a lessening uh, when it comes to either the quality or the standard of care. But I wanted to assure uh, you as our listeners that when I mentioned uh, or mentioned level 3.1 or when we discussed in the last podcast uh, factors, uh, the dimensions of care when it applies to uh, that particular uh, level of care, halfway house 3.1, really it it does not lessen, again, the quality, uh, does not lessen necessarily even the standard of care even as we would measure that not only in terms of the facility, rehabilitation services or rehabilitation center, uh, but also in terms of the staff or the programmatic content. And uh, I want to assure our listeners as well, you our listeners as well, that uh, residential, halfway house, uh, some sort of rehabilitation facility where one goes in and takes up residence, Uh, can and does and should include then only the highest level of professionalism and standard of care available. Uh, Now that does again kind of include a broader or a broad range of interventions and certainly even as this uh, segment of the podcast pertaining to opioid use disorder uh, and the different levels of care would imply there's a broad range of services from those that are much more restrictive and intense to those that are lesser. And within a rehabilitation facility or a halfway house, you also have then the opportunity to have more community-based services, uh, which really is sort of then the desired end. You want that to be a transition of sorts Uh, where the individual then can become more community-supported or community-based in their recovery than they are necessarily reliant upon some sort of of a professional system or a system of professional services uh, that would then uh, be the way that they otherwise maintain their sobriety. Not that the professional would, again, be a bad thing, uh, but a person probably is not going to require or should not require and be in treatment for the rest of their life. We want that individual, as would be with any behavioral health intervention, to become self-sustaining, not dependent upon uh, the behavioral health community 
uh, of providers, professional providers, uh, any more than it would include uh, medical providers, as with medication assist treatment or medications. Uh, you would want that individual to be adaptive and believe that in making those modifications, those changes in their life, which is, again, what this is all about, treatment, uh, they would then be able to become healthier, <laughs> that there would be a natural sort of inclination for their level of health, mental and physical, behavioral as well as medical, to improve. Uh, and with that, not only as measured quantitatively the quality of their life, but in a more, I guess, subjective uh, sort of phenomenological sort of perspective, they would feel better about themselves. They would have better self-esteem. They would connect better emotionally, socially uh, with the people that make up their world. And as uh, was said in the uh, last podcast, would then find themselves as a contributing member of society, uh, whereas they would be able to give as much as they receive. In addition to that, I also sort of wanted to go back and add to our last podcast this notion. And this isn't uh, something I've not already said or that we've not already mentioned uh, or have covered in our discussions. These levels of care, beginning with point five, early intervention, ASAM, American Society of Addiction Medicine, level one, outpatient, Level one, opioid treatment program or medication assist treatment. Level 2.1, intensive outpatient treatment. Level 2.5, partial hospitalization. And then again, as we concluded last podcast with level 3.1, halfway house or some sort of a um, facility that otherwise would then be rehabilitative uh, when it comes to the opioid use and the associated difficulties. It has been suggested, I have suggested, and I believe that ASAM sort of is inclined to suggest that there is an intensification and somewhat, again, a, a more restrictive component as one proceeds from early intervention, through outpatient, through intensive outpatient, through partial hospitalization, and now through a halfway house or rehabilitative services, that there's an intensification of not only the intervention, but it's more restrictive. Uh, and that is true. And I've also suggested that fundamentally what we're looking for is a place to either reestablish a point along the way, this continuum of either reestablishing or potentially establishing for the first time some really foundational, fundamental sort of approaches, um, assets, resources, ways of going about, um, adaptive sort of measures of how to live one's life. Uh, with then the idea that a substance, illicit substance, misuse, abuse, or dependence 
would be reflective of both. Not only maladaptive coping, but the result of maladaptive coping. If you establish a solid foundation, if we establish not only emotional maturity, psychological maturity, but in that then psychosocial connections, maturity of our ability to connect, become integrated in, become part of a social support system, then foundationally that would remedy, once again, by removal of a need for some sort of illicit substance as a major, major means of coping or measure of coping, but also then would be as it would show itself by those measures, not only in a quantitative way, but a qualitative sort of way, that one is functioning optimally or as optimally as is possible in the moment they're in. And if you're able to emotionally regulate, psychologically process your life circumstances or the data facts that make up your life circumstances and situations, coming up with best responses, coming up with strategies and plans to achieve certain objectives and goals, to do that within the context of, again, mutual benefit of others as well as yourself, them to you, helping you, then that's going to be a pretty good life. <laughs> and we're not going to look at that as pathological, as in with outcome, result, symptoms, or pathogenic, as in cause or effect. If the foundation is solid, if these basic sort of uh, accomplishments, milestones are in place, then the process, as far as the cause effect, you eliminate the cause of the effect of the illicit substance misuse. But you also, if you do that by the highest measure of adaptability, which we've said before in prior podcasts, would be just that, qualitative as well as quantitative life, <laughs> living life to its fullest, maximizing the opportunities life presents to have a rich life, not necessarily just materially, but an enriched life in terms of one's relationships with self and others. But if that's corrected, then you're going to have positive outcomes. We're not going to necessarily call them symptoms, but it's the same idea. What we're going to see as evidence of that in those qualitative and quantitative sort of measures is going to be commensurate with good. Not only feeling good, but enjoyment, contentment, satisfaction with life and the people you've surrounded yourself, the endeavors that you've chosen to invest yourself in throughout your life. That's logical. It's common sense. But I wanted to make sure I pointed that out or took a few moments again in today's podcast to just reemphasize and even maybe fortify a bit more that notion that if you're able to do that with early intervention, 
if the correction does not require as much in the way of intensity or restriction, fantastic. But if it can't be done with early intervention, then certainly outpatient, more intense, more restrictive, but not as intense or as restrictive. Again, add to that the dimension of opioid treatment program or medication assist treatment. More intense, you're doing more, and it has a more restrictive element where something has to not only be done to change or assist in changing, but more importantly, assist in stopping the maladaptive so that the adaptive, which is the, again, end or goal of all psychotherapeutic, psychological counseling change, can take place. Intensive outpatient, more intense and more restrictive. Partial hospitalization, more intense, more restrictive. But it's, again, directed toward these primary foundational sort of accomplishments, these developmental milestones. Emotional development, psychological development, and again, I would add, believe most in the industry of addictions, substance abuse, chemical dependency, treatment would add spirituality. Not that this, once more, has not been said previously or stated previously in the podcast or this series of podcasts on opioid misuse. But just making certain, though, we realize all those things would then add to or necessarily be there if anything in the way of a halfway house or a rehabilitative facility, services facility, would work. Because the idea of even halfway suggests somewhat of a transition. But not to allow that to become too much of a hang-up or potential hang-up so that we lose the point. All of the interventions, all of the levels of care are transitional from one that's needing some intervention, again, more intense, more restrictive, to hopefully one that doesn't need, is not so needful of that sort of an intervention, particularly from the professional participating, the PAR core providers that supply these professional services of chemical dependency treatment, substance abuse treatment, particularly opioid use disorder treatment. So what that allows us to do is at least understand that rehabilitative services as well as a halfway house seems more obviously transitional, but it's all predicated upon accomplishment of what hopefully up to that point in terms of these ASAM levels of care we would have wanted to have accomplished. So what that does then is allows me to go more toward then an area of higher intensity, even more so restrictive care, which last podcast I mentioned as residential treatment, and I wanted to, again, just go back and clarify, a halfway house is residential, but it's not the most intense or the most restrictive 
residential care one might find themselves in need of. And certainly when we get to residential treatment, there is, in addition to 2.5 partial hospitalization as being non-residential, 3.1 halfway house rehabilitation services facility as being that first step toward residential, there are other interventions and a myriad of interventions that really necessitate one going into a facility that once more is distinguishable from a halfway house as halfway house and then rehabilitative services were distinguishable from partial hospitalization as well as intensive outpatient treatment, distinguishable by not then just the residential aspect of it, but continuing to be so, it is a sign or it is evidentiary of a need for increased intensity. And once more, even more than having that as your primary residence, residential care can include even more restrictive dimensions. And with that, then, there's more energy being asserted or applied from an outside agent rather than the patient themselves. But in the end, we really always want to come back to the patient taking over that responsibility, allowing it to be once more community-based, part of the more normal social or psychosocial environment that all of us hopefully aspire to or presently do live in. Again, that normal being somewhat of a range, some more, some less, but within the scope and range of what we would consider to be normal, societal, cultural sort of interactions, participation, investments, where we contribute and receive, equally so to others receiving and contributing. In a residential treatment facility, though, a higher intensity, a more restrictive level, which again, according to ASAM, is level 3.5, the principle of today's podcast discussion, we are looking at, for the most part, the same sort of measures of need or requirements when it comes to these six dimensions. When it is in regards to intoxication, withdrawal potential, it is minimal or manageable. When it comes to biomedical conditions, level 3.5, residential care, treatment at this higher intensity level or this more restrictive level, there are none or they're mild or the person, again, is receiving adequate medical services and care. Dimension number three, emotional behavioral. If the readiness for change is significant or high, then really any emotional or behavioral concerns would then be seen as insignificant. Now, they may be insignificant as with former levels or previously discussed, formerly discussed, previously discussed levels of care, including rehabilitation services, halfway house, 
as well as partial hospitalization, intensive outpatient, outpatient early intervention, none or mild, or receiving adequate behavioral health services. But why I want to at least clarify as much ASAM clarifies when it comes to dimension three, emotional behavioral concerns, and dimension four, readiness for change, if there is a high enough readiness for change, which is, again, dimension four, then dimension three is already presupposed to have been properly addressed. If dimension three is significant or high, then those two things validate one another as much the readiness for change as well as the emotional and behavioral concerns would have to both be at least turned toward, redirected toward, measurably shown improvements, if not high levels, relatively speaking, they're still in care, they're still in treatment, and it is a residential treatment, but that neither serve as barriers. If one's motivated to get better, then their emotional behavioral problems in a, in a positive correlating way would also be higher. And if your emotional behavioral difficulties as far as treatment's concerned, as far as having them manageable or maintain a certain degree of elevated or higher functioning, then your, the positive correlation, readiness to change will also be high. When it comes to dimension five, the potential for relapse or continued use, there is a high relapse risk that's associated, hence why it's a more intense and restrictive intervention. But it's not due to a lack of will or attitude to get better. It is more, again, simply because if left either in rehabilitation services 3.1 or halfway house 3.1 or anything lesser in these terms of this continuum of care levels of care as espoused by the American Society of Addiction Medicine just as with intensive outpatient treatment the individual is likely going to fail if left on their own in any manner or way. Now, again, up through the rehabilitation services, halfway house dimension, there's always been a continued exposure outside of the facility to the more normal world. Unfortunately for the addict, what is normal has all these additional components of others who use, as well as those who promote the use of illicit substances. And, with that should be said, directly profit, some of which, from your continued, if you're an addict, use of the substance. 
When it gets to residential treatment, this highest level of intensity and this most restrictive of intervention, what we're really saying is the person cannot leave the facility. They must not only check in, and we said that with intensive outpatient as well as partial hospitalization in prior podcasts, and check out, they have to stay in until it is determined that they are at a level that they then may go to either transitionally so, back to the community, but always with this in mind. They may still need some sort of step down from that highest level of intensity and restriction to something like rehabilitative services, 3.1 from 3.3, excuse me, 3.5, or we determine that maybe they don't necessarily need the land there, they could go to a partial hospitalization, 2.5, intensive outpatient treatment? Or should their accomplishment be such and it be in that way of the highest measures of emotional functioning, psychological and spiritual functioning, functioning, adaptability, they may actually be able to be sustained just with outpatient care? And should there be even then the need for opioid treatment or medication assist as part of that outpatient, that would also be an appropriate referral as the person has accomplished or successfully completed this residential treatment at this highest level of care. Intensity, restriction. Why, again, because despite their management of emotional behavioral concerns, which could be triggers, biomedical conditions, which could be seen as, again, triggering of a relapse, or even their readiness to change would be so high we would not recognize that as a trigger, a potential trigger. Nonetheless, they have not shown themselves able to say no, or to manage then the trigger that others, that their more normal community would have otherwise come to prior to their engagement in treatment. Or if they have failed subsequent lesser levels, intensity and restriction of care, that that same environment is not there psychosocially, otherwise, waiting for their return. They will not be able to do that on their own. But when they are ready to be discharged from a higher intensity, more restrictive level of care, residential treatment, level 3.5, ASAM criterion, matrix, we would then believe them to have lessened risk. And with that, depending on where we assess that risk to be, however we might go about assessing that risk from low to moderate to high, 
we want to make sure that as they're discharged, that they go through a step down, a lesser intensive, lesser restrictive option, rather than simply saying, you're good, (laughs) it's over. Go out there and don't do any more of that. Which when I say it that way, it should, again, resonate. It doesn't work that way. That's setting a person up for failure. So when it comes to dimension six, level 3.5 residential treatment, the living environment, it's risky. Recovery is risked by possible failures or weaknesses in that recovery environment. And with that, recovery not only is possible, but is contingent upon, again, maintaining some semblance of structure, which is what we basically said in the last podcast was the advantages to or an advantage to Not only a halfway house, but as we've added to that a synonym, a rehabilitative services facility, that structure is so important. Accountability becomes a measure then of one's participation in a structure that is facilitative of, again, healthy outcomes. Going back to our earliest discussion today, if we get the fundamentals, the milestones of adaptive functioning, emotional regulation, sophistication, or at least enhancement, maturity, and psychological operations, including problem solving, as well as add a spiritual dimension of connection, not only with one's psychosocial environment, but the world at large that surrounds the individual, then once those things are accomplished, that structure helps to accomplish, the person can then begin to be encouraged to take on that responsibility for themselves. The more they assume that responsibility, the less then that there is a need for somebody else to take over that responsibility. So, having then defined, according to the American Society of Addiction Medicine, what precisely it is to be in residential treatment with the highest of intensity and restriction, albeit halfway house, level 3.1, as well as rehabilitative services facility has a residential dimension. What we're speaking of today at level 3.5 residential treatment is actually remaining in the facility supervised 24 hours a day for whatever the duration would be of that intervention. Could be months, possible years. Hopefully it would not be years, plural, but up to a number of months that could approach even 12, a year. 
Generally, what we then call this within the medical community or the medical model overall is inpatient treatment, which then is in distinction to outpatient care. Another way of explaining this within the medical community or medical model is primary, secondary, and tertiary care. Tertiary care does not necessarily imply an inpatient. It can include an outpatient. But it sort of captures, though, the basic notion that early intervention, as with ASAM, and primary care is to be as much preventative of the more intensive and restrictive as possible. Hopefully so, in the way of prevention, before it actually even becomes a disease or a disorder. And that is, again, based upon this notion that substance abuse, dependence, opioid use disorder is a disease. There is a progressive aspect to it. By the time that you get to secondary levels of care within the medical model, you have already demonstrated disease, progression, onset. Now, sometimes that can be cured. However, sometimes it's not cured it's just arrested and maintained at a lesser level than what in progression with worsening symptomatology, progression of the actual disorder, the process of disorder itself would otherwise potentially or have the potential to take one to. And as we did say in the last podcast too, it could result in death. Imminent more immediate, premature. So the idea of an inpatient treatment intervention certainly then lines up with the more intense and restrictive aspects of residential treatment from ASAM level 3.5 through 3.7 medically monitored intensive inpatient services to level 4.0 which would be medically managed intensive inpatient services where there would even be a greater aspect of care, intensity, and restriction even than the 3.7. And with that could be measured as much uh, for the sake of simplicity in, in our podcast, just also by a matter of time a dimension of time, measure of time. How many times over how much time does it take for one to stop an addictive pattern of illicit substance use? In more colloquial sort of reference or terms, many would say as many times as would be necessary And having saying it that way, having said it that way, would also be then acknowledging it's multiple. Multiple times, multiple interventions. There's going to be mistakes. 
Unfortunately, mistakes can lead to relapses or lapses and relapses. And unfortunately, lapses and relapses can risk one's being set back to the point almost as much as when they started the treatment. It could also represent then the failure over the continuum of care going from early intervention to outpatient to intensive outpatient to partial to halfway house to residential treatment. Of all of the interventions in a summary sort of way, summative sort of way. But if there's one thing that is then also suggested when one looks at it in terms of times over time, it is that the more times one tries over factored by an extended over a period of time, actually speaks then to an increase in one's eventual success of sobriety or recovery rather than disqualifies one or as with the disorder and disease untreated, it's guaranteed the percentages are not in your favor. You increase your chances of success the many times, the number of times that you go back, try to work on the program again, even if lapses occur, relapses occur, and if you don't quit, you continue. And that is why most relapse prevention plans include this very thought. It's not measured success, recovery, sobriety, so much so by your failures, but how many times you re-engage in treatment and you don't quit. Presuming that you have an opportunity over time, the mistake is not fatalistic or a consequence of the illicit substance use socially, physically, psychologically, does not kill you prematurely, you will eventually succeed. May not be much consolation, but I do think it captures an attitude, both of respect for how difficult it is, but also how important it is in terms of motive to keep trying, but also there's a bit of a reward if you at least keep trying, no matter how many times you fail, you will eventually one day succeed. When it comes to inpatient treatment, it is an end-all or stopgap. You can go back to inpatient several times, just like you can re-engage in any of these levels of care several times. But when you're Speaking of, or when we speak of, such as levels 3.5, 0.7, and 4.0, all of these representative of more intense and restrictive treatments, you're at a place where we are not only in terms of secondary care, but we've seen, unfortunately, the likelihood of some degree of chronicity, and with that urgency 
or at least impetus to keep the person alive, they need to have somebody stop them from killing themselves. Now, it could be the patient themselves, the addict themselves, but even then, the reason they're going inpatient or requesting that, should they then ask for help in that way or come to someone who knows not only the ASAM criterion, but the American Psychiatric Association's diagnostic criterion, and then, in opinion, says the treatment plan must include an inpatient or you're going to continue to progress and you may end up killing yourself, harming yourself or harming others. But even then, that has that dimension of prevent as much as possible, treat as soon as possible, and if it is chronic, try to at least identify a highest level of adaptive functioning attainable and maintain it, primary secondary, and tertiary care. And it would then include all of the levels of care as treatment options in whatever balance, proportion, or measure would be necessary, hoping then that one might not ever have to go back to residential treatment at this highest level, or even at the sort of moderate level of halfway house, or rehabilitation treatment facility, intensive outpatient treatment, outpatient treatment, or early intervention. It's all somewhat contingent, again, upon a multiple measure of factors, assessment of factors, and with that, the ability of the person to know where the bottom is. That's where the line needs to be drawn. Because despite then anyone else's outside of the addict or the patient's concerns for themselves, anyone might get traction in having concern for the addict. It would only occur if the addict were to see themselves as worthy of saving. And what is otherwise treatment but that idea of saving? Saving their life, sparing their life, all of the trauma that goes either causative with addictions or because of or by consequence of a pattern of addiction to illicit substances and the consequences that follow as being traumatizing or to the family members that contend with this individual who in that is ultimately self-destructive and self-defeating as well as all the providers along the way regardless of the level of care where they've intervened whatever level of care they've intervened, that they too then have been unable to assist except that the patient is willing to receive the saving or the help or the assistance that that 
represents. One has to not only ask for help, but has to, in asking for help, believe that either they are worthy enough to receive it or that in the help they get, they can find some measure of saving or salvation. If they do not, they are going to ultimately win. And what would then be the win in that regard would be they can and will eventually succeed in destroying themselves. And along the way, not only the life that they've been given, but that they share with others. And at tremendous cost, both personally as well as the people that care for them. Now that's a little sobering. It should be. And I say it with that purpose in mind. We can help you we being the professional community, physicians, psychiatrists, professional clinical counselors, social workers, psychologists. We can help you, but you have to ask for it and you have to want it. We can stop you for a while from destroying yourself and assist your family in that same way who would want nothing more, hopefully, than to help you. But if you don't ask for it, you don't cooperate, they can only stop you from self-destruction for a definitive period of time, a specific period of time. Because in the end, no one can save someone else except that that someone else wants to be saved. And even then, they have to find some motive inside of themselves greater than the motive that otherwise has led them to such a moment or time or point in time of self-defeat, self-destruction, even death. We do these podcasts to encourage. We do these podcasts to inform and educate. We've specifically done this podcast for the benefit of all of those who are either addicts or have a family member, friend, or know an addict and are in a position to not only want to help but have a desire to help. But if you don't ask for it, whether you're the addict or even the family member, eventually this thing, like all diseases, wins. Disease untreated ends in premature death. That is the essential basis for the medical model. We want to help. Hopefully, again, the podcasts have. Even what I'm doing right now as intention to assist you, whomever is listening right now, addict, family, friend, to find motive, have insight, find motive to ask for help. 
I post the email address for that purpose. Contact me. Be glad to assist, possibly treat you if that's possible. If not, then find someone who is more readily accessible and available in wherever you should live and reside, wherever you should call home, whatever community you should be in, wherever it may be, to locate the help that you need so that when you ask, you'll know who to ask. And also, with that, I'll do everything I can to assist you in knowing what to expect, even more so than the podcasts in general do. Now, we've got a bit more to say, <laughs> maybe not so much anymore about the opioid use disorder, but I want to cover a couple of more categories of substance-related and addictive disorders. And in particular, I'd like to speak of a substance, a category of substance that unfortunately at this particular, the unfortunate aspect of it, unfortunately at this particular moment in time and within our culture is otherwise being promoted as harmless. But it's in the diagnostic manual as a disorder, and it has the potential to become therein, therefore, thereby disordered, but that's the use of cannabis, and in particular, THC. So, I would like to invite you back for a summary or for me to give us some sort of quick summary on opioid use disorder, as well as segue that into, I believe we're going to talk about cocaine or stimulant, uh, particularly stimulant abuse, but I know for a fact I've got something I'd like to share with you when it comes to the use of pot, cannabis, THC. Hopefully that won't discourage you from coming back because even if you're the greatest proponent, not necessarily in cocaine or stimulants, but especially the cannabis, I think you need to hear what not only I am going to report to you, but my reports are going to be based on the American Psychiatric Association's conclusions when it comes to including cannabis, THC, as a disorder with potential then, as with any substance-related disorder or misuse, to cause harm both psychosocially as well as physiologically, and that includes emotionally and behaviorally, and can contribute to concurrent dual diagnosis conditions, which we've really not mentioned that for several podcasts, but if you've listened to all of them, you'll know what I mean when I say that. So this is an open invitation to come back and join us on our next podcast. And again, you're listening to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. Thanks for joining us today.